So a recent poll uh, showed that about three quarters of Americans believe in heaven. About 75%, roughly, give or take. That's a number that has remained pretty steady over the, the last kind of 50 years. That, that same poll, however, showed that only half of Americans believe in hell. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, that number also has remained steady uh, for, for the last 50 years or so. Uh, apparently, when we think about our own lives, when, when, we, when we think about like eternity, uh, we are much more comfortable with the idea of mercy and, and blessing and reward than we are with the idea of justice or accountability or punishment. When it comes to eternity, when it comes to dealing with God, uh, uh, Americans apparently believe you can have the former without the latter. Now, that's not really surprising. That's kind of the way we'd like the world to work, right? Um, What's striking, though, to me about that, since this is a measure of sort of popular opinion, is, is how much that's in contrast with popular culture. So, so think about every movie you've ever seen in which there's a villain. And, and then maybe there's, you know, some, some, some innocents, right, that need to be rescued or whatever. There's never just a rescue. There's always retribution on the villain, right? There's, a, there's, always, there's always punishment, Right. You, you, you think about like the Harry Potter series, Hogwarts at the end with all those innocent children. Right. It's not just it's not just saved from the evil attack. No, Voldemort ends up not just defeated. He's, he's like killed. And it's an act of justice. Or one of my favorite recent movies, uh, Ca- Captain Captain Phillips. Right. Captain Phillips isn't just rescued from the pirates, the pirates are killed justly by these Navy SEALs. And, and, and that's one of those stories in you know, popular entertainment that's actually taken from real life. Those are kind of the only stories taken from real life that make it into popular entertainment. You, you, you see, I think popular culture is on to something, even if popular opinion is not. And that's this. Mercy... Without justice is deeply unsatisfying. It is deeply unsatisfying. Except when it comes to ourselves. Now at that point, you know, mercy alone will do quite nicely. Thank you very much. But shouldn't that give us pause? That, that we want to make this exception for ourselves? Is it possible to have mercy without justice? Is it even desirable to have mercy without justice? This morning we've come to the dramatic climax of the book of Esther. This is a book that we've been working our way through uh, beginning in the winter. Now it's the first day of spring. Uh, It is a book about the providence of God in mercy and in judgment. 
And consistent with the rest of the Bible, Esther's message is that mercy, salvation, if you will, comes through justice, not apart from justice. Now, on the one hand, that's a really hopeful message. That, that, that should give us hope, right? That, that someday God intends to set everything right. But on the other hand, it leaves us wondering, right? I mean, real life is not like the movies. There, there's no one who is pure victim. There is no one who is pure villain. Everyone needs mercy. Everyone deserves justice. So which will it be for you? Turn with me, if you would, to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided, this is found on page 437. 437. Esther chapter 7. Uh, let me just read the first verse. Because this is the scene. This sets the scene. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. All right. Not even, not even 24 hours have passed since the end of chapter 5, right? Where Haman set in motion his plan to have Mordecai executed. The king is utterly oblivious to Esther's plight. And, and he's also basically oblivious to the true nature of Haman's plot. And now the king and Haman sit down to a banquet with Esther. This is the second banquet that Esther has thrown in two days. And as it begins, kind of assumingly, unassumingly, the king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. The, the question is, well, who's going to prevail? Like, which, which plan is going to work out? Is it, is it going to be Esther's plan or Haman's plan? What, what's, what's going to happen? The answer in chapter 7, as we're going to see, comes through not one but two requests for mercy. Not one, but two requests for mercy. And here's the thing. Both of those requests could be answered positively with, with, with mercy. But only one can be satisfied. Only one can be satisfied. Here's, here's, I think, the point of Esther chapter 7 for us this morning. We'll put it on the screen. Ironically, our plea for mercy can only be satisfied by God's answer of justice. Ironically, our plea for mercy can only be satisfied by God's answer of justice. We're going to consider the two requests for mercy in turn, and then we're going to look at the answer. So let's start with the first request for mercy. The first request for mercy. We'll read from verse 1 down to the beginning of verse 6. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, sp- 
spare my life. This is my request and spare my people. This is my desire for my people. And I have been sold to destruction, death and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. All right, we'll stop there. All right. So second feast, second day, well into his wine, the queen, the king asks again. This is actually the third time that he's asked for Esther's request. And and he wants to make it really clear yet still. Right. I'm, I'm predisposed towards you, Esther. I'm I'm predisposed to give you what you ask for. Whatever you seek will be given to you up to half the kingdom. Now, let's be really clear. In one sense, nothing has changed from the day before. Nothing has changed from the day before. And yet, as readers, you you know, that that dramatic reversal and the the humiliation of Haman early that the morning of of which chapter seven is happening, it has us kind of on the edge of our seats. Esther does not hesitate. She answers the king in exactly the same terms that he asked. He, He kind of put his question to her in two parts. Whatever you Ask whatever you seek, but he's not saying you get two asks. It's like it's one and the same thing. Whatever you ask, whatever you seek, it's, it's one request uh, that, that he has in mind to give to her. And she answers in the same terms. Spare my life. This is my request. Spare my people. This is my desire. This is what I seek. Verse three. It's one and the same request. As she identifies herself with her people. Now, now at this moment, I think it's it's easy, especially if you're a dude, especially if you're a dude, it's easy to miss the delicate nature of her task at this point. Right. You understand what Esther's trying to do. She has to accuse Haman without implicating the king. Her husband. Right. She she doesn't want her husband at this moment in, in, as she makes this request to all of a sudden feel cornered or or embarrassed or ashamed and kind of have to turn on her and say no in order to save face. Because, you know, it was his decree. Right. So what does she do? She appeals to his sympathies. She appeals to his desires. I suggested a couple a few weeks ago that I think there's quite a bit of sexual tension going on in this scene. And, and I think this is in part why. Right. She is she's needing to motivate a response. If I found favor with you, oh, if you're if you're pleased with me, spare me and my people. She doesn't directly accuse his friend. And his closest advisor. No, instead, she quite wisely arouses the king's husbandly concern for her and then very skillfully attaches that concern to her people. Esther is one shrewd operator. Now, before I go any further, 
Can I just observe that there's probably not a woman in the room who cannot relate to Esther at this moment, right? What woman has not had to navigate the problem of fragile male ego and a husband or a father or a boyfriend? What woman has not needed to try to get her husband to, to do the right thing or to address a problem? And, and yet at the same time, she knows but I can't like I got to let him save face, because if I don't let him save face, he won't like be willing to address the problem. Now, the reason that I know that every woman in this room has had to deal with this is because my wife has had to deal with this for 32 years. Um, and I say that to my shame. I say that to my shame. How many times, brothers, has our pride caused our wives to have to oh so delicately approach an issue when actually she should have just been able to come to us and we should have been able to handle the truth of it? Shouldn't we men who are followers of Jesus, shouldn't we be quick to own our responsibility? Shouldn't we, of all people on the planet, be easy to confront? And yet we're not. I mean, even just this week, I was not. I think this is probably one of the best ways to judge Men, I think this is one of the best ways to judge whether or not you're really resting in the gospel. Whether or not you actually believe that your justification is in Christ, not in being right in front of your wife. Can you be confronted by the women in your life without getting upset, without getting defensive? Without getting angry. I struggle with this. And I was deeply convicted by this this week. As I thought about what Esther was up against. And I realized too often I make Adrian act like Esther. Brothers, it should not be. Not if our justification is in Jesus. Rather than our rightness. Well, that was a tangent, but an important one. So back to the text, right? Having, having aroused his sympathy, what does Esther do? <clears throat> she goes on to explain. Verse 4, she and her people have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. Why did she choose those three words? Well, those are the exact three words from the decree that Haman had issued and that the king approved back in chapter 3, verse 13. Though your English translations may obscure the fact that they're all the same, they're actually all the same words. So what does she do then next? Well, she kind of modestly seeks to mollify the king. It, you know, the end of verse 4, look, I mean, honey, if it were just slavery... I wouldn't have said anything. I wouldn't have wanted to burden you if it was just slavery that I was going to be sold into. 
And at this point, we think, what? <laughs> what did you just say? You're mollifying him by saying, well, it's just if you're just selling me into slavery, I would have kept my mouth shut. I mean, that's crazy. That's kind of bizarre, right? Surely slavery is as bad, if not worse than death, because slavery keeps going and death. Well, it's over. Well, I think this is one of those places in the book of Esther where without saying it, the author wants us to be very aware of the presence of God, even though he's not even mentioned the presence of God in the mind of Esther, maybe certainly in the mind of the author. The Jews were in exile because of their sin and rebellion against the Lord. That's that's why Esther is in Persia. That's why the Jews are scattered throughout the Persian Empire. God has sent them into exile as judgment for their sin. And one of the main punishments that the Lord announced ahead of time for their rebellion in Deuteronomy 28 is that they would be sold as male and female slaves among the nations. Could it be that Esther knows that? So that her concession here isn't just to mollify, you know, kind of mollify the king in whatever way she thinks he needs to be mollified. But could it be that this concession is also her own understanding of what the word of God says and her submission to God's judgment? If we were sold into slavery, that would be just and right. Because God said that would be part of the punishment for our rebellion. We don't know. We don't know if that's what Esther was thinking. We don't know because the author doesn't tell us. And the only mind we have access to is the expressed mind. So we don't know for sure. But we do know that the author is telling us this. And we know that the author knew it. But the author knew something else. The author, and I think Esther, also knew that God had promised that exile and even being sold into slavery would not be the last word that God had to say about his people. Two chapters later in Deuteronomy 30, God promises that after that judgment had fallen, God would have compassion on his people and bring them back. So you see the logic here. If they're only sold as slaves, well, God's promise of restoration still stands. But if they are exterminated, God's promise fails. At least at the literary level, if not in her own mind, Esther's plea for mercy here is being placed against the backdrop of both God's justice and his mercy. And her hope and, and the hope of the book of Esther is that God does not change his mind. He does not go beyond his word and say, well, I said you'd be punished this much, but yeah, I'm going to punish you even more. He doesn't go beyond his word. And he does not do less than his word. Friends, our hope is the same. God has promised, he promised at the very beginning, all the way back there with Adam and Eve, that sin will be punished by death. That was the stated 
penalty at the very beginning. And God has not changed his mind. But that is not the only promise God has made. Just as Deuteronomy 30 follows after Deuteronomy chapter 28. So the, the, the promise that sin would bring death is followed by another promise. A promise that God would accept a substitute. A substitute death for all who would put their faith in him. Here's where our hope for mercy finally rests. Not in the idea that we could get mercy without justice, but in the promise that God would allow justice to fall on another, a substitute who would stand in our place. Our hope for mercy, therefore, is not finally based on our cleverness or our likability or how good we've cleaned ourselves up or how hard we've tried. No, our hope for mercy is based on the promises and the character of God. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That God would take on flesh and come to this earth, sending his son, Jesus, as a man to, to live a perfect life that didn't deserve death, but then who would offer that life as a substitute for us, taking on himself the justice that we deserve. That we, in trusting in the substitute, might be forgiven, might be reconciled to God. If if you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand about Christianity. Not that there's a way to, like, get out of the justice that you deserve. But that, no, God has already suffered that justice for you. In the person of Jesus Christ. And that if you will trust him. His punishment. Will stand as your punishment. So that his relationship with God. Might become your relationship with God. I'd love to talk to you more about this. You can find me afterwards or talk to the person that you came with. But please don't misunderstand the goodness of the good news of Christianity. Salvation comes through judgment. A judgment that fell on someone else. If you will trust him. Well, as we see here, Esther knows her audience. And her approach is immediately effective. The king's jealousy is aroused. His outrage is stoked, but not his memory. Like not he like there are no like bells going off in his head apparently about that edict, and, and and of course you know her Jewish identity is still hidden so Haman seems to not really see what's coming he's kind of unaware the, the king is angry he wants to know who would devise such a scheme literally who would fill his heart with such wickedness to do this clearly he means to do something about it. The, the, the language is, is clipped and terse in its anger. And now Esther sees her moment, right? Because, because she's not like barging in, accusing. The king is inviting the accusation. And so Esther is ready. The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. It's the third time Haman has been called the enemy, the 
enemy of the Jews. But notice, even here, Esther leaves his name for last. In the Hebrew, it's almost last. So that he doesn't even know what's coming and he's caught by surprise. Christian, if I can speak to you specifically for a moment. Just as Esther and the Jews had an enemy, so do we. Our enemy is personal. Our enemy has a name. It's not Haman. It's also not Democrat or Republican. It's not gay or transgender. It's not President Putin or President Xi. Our enemy is Satan. He is our ancient foe. And the Bible consistently describes him this way. He is the accuser. Of the brothers and sisters in Revelation 12. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in 1 Peter 5. He is the ruler of the power of the air. The spirit at work in the disobedient in Ephesians chapter 2. He is a liar and the father of lies. A murderer from the beginning according to Jesus in John chapter 8. We live in a world that feels like all it is is a natural world. We, we, We operate. Day in and day out, as if all there is, is matter. All there is, is what we can see. Now, now in this kind of natural world that we operate in, we're kind of sometimes sort of comfortable thinking about God. But we really don't like thinking about a malevolent, personal, spiritual being who has a name and who means our destruction. That, in fact, is who he is. This is not only not just a natural world, it is a supernatural world. And this is not a neutral world. Scripture tells us that even now, the enemy, the devil, is making war against the people of God. Revelation chapter 12. So so I just kind of want to in some ways, validate your experience, Christian, if sometimes it feels like it's personal. If sometimes it feels like the world is out to get you, well, it is. It is. That's not conspiratorial thinking. It's recognizing that there are realities that we cannot see. Realities that are malevolently arrayed against you for your harm. Now, if that's important for you to know as a Christian, how much more important is it to see that if you're not a Christian? You see, I think if... if if, if you're not a Christian, if, you, if you've not grappled with the fact that this is a supernatural world and there is a supernatural enemy, then, then the reality is it's, it's like you're living in Putin's Russia at this moment. And, and you, you are being bombarded by a kind of propaganda that says there's nothing to see here. There's, there's, there's nothing to worry about. Everything you feel is just natural. So go with it. Your sense of right and wrong is totally fine. Go with it. 
I, I, I've been fascinated by, by reading these stories of Ukrainians trying to talk to their, their Russian relatives and explain to them that there's a war going on and my apartment just get, got bombed and their relatives over in Russia who are only seeing the propaganda on state TV are saying, no, your apartment didn't just get bombed. You, there, there's no war in Ukraine. The, the, the Russian forces are just there to liberate you. They're just there to get rid of the Nazis. And, and these Ukrainian families are like pulling out their hair because they cannot convince their relatives on the other side of what reality is. And that's because on the other side they have been blinded. They have been deceived by a malevolent propaganda. Friends, if you don't know God, if, if you are not hearing from him, then you are very much like those Russian relatives on the other side of the propaganda wall. How would you know if you're being deceived? How would you know if, if, if your own sense of right and wrong, if your own sense of what's natural and good is like just, that's just the measure of reality. Like, how would you know if, if maybe it's not that way? I'll tell you how you would know. God would need to kind of pierce that information wall. He would need to speak. And you would need to have ears to hear it. That's what the scriptures are. God speaking. That, that's what a local church is. A, 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 a community of people that are saying, hey, reality is not what you think it is. And you can look at this community to begin to get a sense of that, ultimately, that's who Jesus is. A message from the other side. Can you hear it? The first request for mercy is Esther's plea, grounded in God's promise that God's people be spared. But it's not the only plea made in our passage. We need to consider the second request for mercy. Let's pick up the story where I left off. Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? We'll stop there. The tables are now turned. In chapter four, it was Esther who was overcome with fear, literally terrified. Now it's Haman who is caught off guard, standing there in terror. And the scene suddenly shifts, right? We're still in the same place, but people come and people go. The king storms off in anger to the palace garden. We don't know what he's thinking, 
But Haman thinks he knows. Haman is convinced there in verse 7 that the king is planning something terrible for him. In fact, I think the king must be in something of a quandary, right? He clearly wants to punish Haman, but how without also implicating himself? I mean, the, e- the, the edict to exterminate all the Jews was Haman's idea, but it went out in the king's name. It was his signet ring that sealed the order. Can he save his queen without undermining his rule? And, and how can he change an unchangeable edict? Okay, that last question doesn't get answered till the next chapter, so you'll have to come back for that. While the king is pondering all of this, Haman takes matters into his own hands. And, and we see there he, he pleads, he begs for his life there in verse 7. In desperation, Haman begins to break every protocol that surrounded a Persian harem, right? So in, in, in ancient Persia, no uncastrated man was to be alone with a member of the harem except the king. And now all of a sudden he's alone with her, right? And, and even when the king is present, no uncastrated man is to be within seven steps of a member of the harem. And actually, he's like falling on our couch to beg for his life. Why is he begging her? Well, we've seen a lot of Ahasuerus, right? We, like Haman knows, the king doesn't ever make a decision by himself. He always needs advice. And, and, and so he's hoping that she will be a merciful advisor to the king, even though he never was. In the ancient Near East, people reclined at table on low couches to eat. They didn't sit in chairs. So just as Haman is falling on her couch, the king walks in. Now, we don't know what solution he'd come up with out in the garden, but when he walks in and he sees that scene, you know he's thinking, problem solved. (laughs) Right? Would he actually violate the king while I'm in the house? There's so many ironies here that we should not miss. The guilty pleading for mercy from the innocent. The fact that he's actually not technically guilty of what he's about to be executed for, because he's not actually trying to violate her. And yet he's absolutely guilty of what he's about to be executed for, because certainly the violation of murder and extermination is even worse than the violation of rape. The point here is that sin and wickedness will be exposed. And there comes a point where mercy is no longer available because repentance is not available. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews speaks of Esau, who was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. Hebrews 12. Haman surely had opportunities to repent. This is not one of them. He doesn't hate the sin itself. He's not ashamed of what he's done. No, he's been caught. And he's terrified of the consequences. Friends, we need to know what repentance actually is. Because repentance is necessary if we are to know the mercy of God. Paul talks about it in in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. 
He describes it as godly grief. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. Friends, repentance is is not just saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. No, No, repentance actually hates the sin, not because of the consequences that the sin brings, but because of the sinfulness of the sin. Repentance understands that justice needs to be done and is willing to do whatever needs to be done to set things right. Repentance makes no excuses, but owns its responsibility and is zealous in its desire for things to be made right. We need to recognize the opportunity for repentance when it comes. And when that opportunity comes, we need to seize it. Because repentance itself is a a grace. It's a a gift from God. it's It's a gift from God that finally we would begin to take God's side against ourselves. That we would acknowledge that he is right and that we are wrong. And that we are in desperate need of his mercy. We need to seize the opportunity when it comes, friends, Because today is the day of repentance. There is no guarantee that the gift will come again tomorrow. There are two requests for mercy in our chapter. But as we've seen, only one offered in faith. And therefore, there can be only one request that is satisfied. In the end, the request for mercy is answered ironically with justice, which leads us to the ironic answer of justice. Look there at the second half of verse 8. As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, There is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. As soon as the king asks the question, the verdict is clear. They cover his face. He is a condemned Man. The only question is the means of execution. And at this point, one of the eunuchs speaks up there in verse 9. I love the eunuchs in the story of Esther. They're, they're like the Greek chorus or sometimes the jesters that come onto the scene. They're, they're fascinating. What, is the, what does the eunuch say? Well, he says, oh, it just so happens gallows have been built by Haman. 
to execute Mordecai. You know, the guy who saved your life, king. You can tell, can't you, that Haman is not well liked by the palace staff. There's innuendo there, too. The innuendo is that maybe Haman was in on that plot. And, and the reason that he wanted to execute Mordecai is Mordecai revealed the plot that got those other guys executed. As usual, the king does not know what's going on in his own city. And he does not make decisions without advice. But this time it's quite clear his answer is terse and ironic. Hang him on it. The gallows Haman made is not the hangman's gallows. You shouldn't get the wrong idea here. We don't have a word in English for the word that's used here. So gallows will have to do. It's kind of the closest equivalent. Haman was not hung by a rope from the neck until he died of asphyxiation. The Persian gallows was a sharpened stake, a pole on which the guilty were impaled. They're to hang by the weight of their own body until they died. And so he was. And as a result, the king's anger subsided. His wrath was assuaged by the justice that had been enacted. Friends, the plea for mercy was answered. And it's so very clear in this instant could only be answered by the ironic justice of Haman's execution. And the same is true for us as well. We cannot be rescued unless the enemy of God's people is defeated. But by nature, we are slaves in Satan's kingdom, sold under the power of sin. Sin is also our great enemy. I think I think Satan must have thought he'd won a great victory. When 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 humanity's sin culminates in the rejection, betrayal, condemnation, and crucifixion of the Son of God, as Jesus hung on that tree to all appearances, he was under the condemnation of God. But I think Satan was also thinking, and so are all of you, because you put him there. God's never going to forget that. He's never going to forgive it. But in fact, at the cross, the tables were being turned. Jesus died on that cross. He hung on that tree. But in his apparent defeat, he was actually triumphing over sin and Satan and death itself. He was assuaging the Father's just wrath against us. But he was doing something else as well. Paul tells us that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers, the spiritual rulers and authorities, and disgraced them publicly. God triumphed over them in Christ. Colossians 2, verse 14. Friends, salvation comes through judgment. Not apart from it. Judgment experienced for us 
as Christ died as our substitute, but also judgment exercised on our behalf as Christ defeated Satan on that cross. It wasn't just our sin that was judged there. It was Satan himself. To borrow one of my favorite phrases from Shakespeare, at the cross, Satan was hoist with his own petard. The bomb maker, that's a petard. The bomb maker, who's making a bomb to blow other people up, got blown up, got lifted up, hoist, got lifted up by it himself. There's a poetic justice at the cross, not just for our sin, but against our foe himself. Christian, our enemy is defeated. And he knows it. It's why he rages. He knows his time is short. So he may harass you. He may incite the world's hatred and persecution against you. The the, the power of his kingdom here on earth may temporarily deprive you of goods or even of mortal life itself. But Christian, your enemy has no power to harm you. No power to harm you if you are in Christ. As Martin Luther famously penned, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, is Jesus Christ. Held out to us in the gospel. Friends, everyone needs mercy. And everyone deserves judgment. The plea for mercy offered in repentance and faith is answered in judgment. The judgment of Calvary. Which means that for the whole world, the cross is either the means of salvation or the guarantee of condemnation. Which will it be for you? Would you pray with me? Take a moment and consider what it would mean to lay your guilt before the Lord and trust that the judgment that was executed at the cross was for you. Heavenly Father, we confess that in so many ways we want a salvation without a Savior We want mercy without a cross. We want everything to be better in our lives, but we want to be left alone in our lives. Lord, help us to see the folly of the way we think about this. Help us to see that that indeed you made us 
to desire justice. Even a justice that condemns us. Oh, but help us to see even more that in your love, you have made a way. You have made a way for the demands of justice to be met in Christ. That we might be forgiven. That our enemy might be defeated. That we might truly be saved through the mercy and justice that is found in Jesus Christ. Help us to see that today. Lest we see it only on the last day when it is too late. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.